Welcome to the Menno HealthCast, a production of the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with themennonite.org. I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland. This is the first episode in our series, Menno's in Medicine. Karen Bundla and I talk about her 46-year career in nursing with more than 30 years working in oncology. We'll talk about her time in Zimbabwe and some of the ethical dilemmas she's faced in her long career. Karen, it is a pleasure to talk with you today on this rainy, cold February day. Thank you. Can you tell me about your career in nursing? Wow. Okay, 46 years. Well, I started out, I guess I graduated in 1972, worked a couple years in med surge nursing, and then went to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and was there for three years at a mission hospital. And there was pretty much involved in everything. <laughs> then came back again into med surge nursing in Lancaster, and then went back to school, got my BSN. Went to Kentucky in 1982, was there for three years. We had gone there because my husband was going to seminary there. And that's when I sort of got introduced into oncology. Then we went back to Zimbabwe and we're back there again for three years. That would have been 85, six, and seven. Moved back to the US in January of 1988, and that's when I started at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. And didn't initially start as an oncology nurse. I went in as a medical clinician, and it dealt a lot with orientation of nurses, precepting. But since I had the oncology experience from the past, I ended up helping a lot with the oncology clinician and realized that we needed a program. And so she and I started the oncology nursing education program there because at that point, the doctors were pretty much doing all the chemotherapy along with her and then myself. And so it just went on from there. And I ended up being there for 30 years in different positions, clinician, clinical coordinator, and then at the end, just pretty much a staff nurse and doing a lot of precepting. Can you tell me some about your time in Zimbabwe and how that affected your patient care? The first three years I was there, when I was there single, uh, I was working with a doctor. We did not do surgeries at that time. A lot of our, our focus was on outpatient, and uh, although we did have inpatients too. And I think it was just the exposure to everything and to a people who had very little limited access to healthcare at that point. And our mission hospital, which was about 25 miles from a provincial hospital that had limited, but better than what we had in some areas and had more doctors, and about 70 miles from a major city hospital. Yet a lot of people came to the mission hospital because they felt they got better care. I really um, became intrigued just with the education of the people and dealing with nutrition, basic health care, etc. Pretty much my time there was spent a lot in seeing outpatients during those time, learning to pull teeth, suture cuts, anything that came along. When I was back the second time, I was with a doctor that time who also did surgeries and did a lot of OBGYN. Um, so we did do minor surgeries and C-sections at that time. He also was very um, invested in teaching the women especially in nutrition. So we had what we called the nutrition village built outside, just outside of the hospital in an area there between the dam and the hospital. 
And it was just a typical African village, and it was staffed by uh, village health workers who had been trained by the government. And when children were brought in with malnutrition, when they, the mothers would often stay with the child. And so we had them stay many times in that village. And then when the child was discharged, they would live there for maybe a week, couple weeks, whatever they could manage, just to get better teaching and better nutrition, what to grow, how to grow it, the most nutritious plants to grow, um, how to cook better things. And it was, it, was a great, it was a great success. They just learned a lot, and it was neat seeing them being able to progress in, uh, in their knowledge. And it was a good program. Tell me how the political situation in Zimbabwe in the 80s affected your hospital there? Well, actually in the 70s, I was there from 74 through 77, or 75, I guess, through 77. That was when the unrest was really getting started, uh, when Ann Smith was still in power at that time. So we had a lot of revolutionaries at that point coming in. In fact, we had armed guards stationed at the hospital that were placed there by the government. We didn't request them. But um, just for protection, as well as I think to sort of screen who was coming through, because at that point there were a lot of um, where rebels were coming in. They were taking young people from schools and taking them across the border, like to Zambia or even on to China for military training, basically. And so there were abductions, especially if they were close to um, the country's borders. Uh, we did not, to my knowledge, have any of that, but. Um, so I left in, um, when did I leave? In April, I guess, of that of 77. I was scheduled to leave just about two months later, but actually right after I left, all the missionaries had been pulled out. They, well, they were taken into town first, and then they were, uh, the church had asked them to leave just for their own safety at that point. And so when we went back in January of 85, the country, of course, had already been turned over. Uh, Mugabe was in um, power at that time, and things were pretty quiet. There were still like some bus burnings and still some revolutionary things, but in general, it was quieter in those years than what it had been the last years I'd been there before. Was the conflict mostly between the government and the and a particular tribe, or was it intertribal? What was the conflict between? Well, initially it was against the white rule, but then you had the tribal with the basically the main two tribes, the Shona and the Indabeli. And then you had the conflict between the leaders of those, and where we were was in the Bailey territory. So a lot of the people coming in then were Shona who were coming in. Then it was the different factions at that time. It was Zapu and Zanu, I believe. So it was then. It was governmental, but it was also intertribal, basically, at that point, yeah. Was there a particular patient encounter from either of your times in Zimbabwe that's really stuck with you? That It's really hard to <laughs> pin that down. Um, I think I'd mentioned one that was uh, with a young girl, a 12-year-old, who died of congestive heart failure. Apparently it had rheumatic fever probably a couple years earlier as a child and really had a bad heart. and. It just, she died um, after we had been seeing her for maybe a year or more, I'm not sure anymore. Just the sweetest person. But it just was so sad because had she been in a place like here, she wouldn't have died. 
I'm sure. You know, there would have been uh, medications and procedures that she could have had that would have saved her. That I think that was that was the most frustrating thing. Um, not having the availability sometimes to medications, which now it's much, much worse than it was even then. But um, just knowing that if it were a different time and place, you would be able to save somebody. And yet, when I think of the many that we saved, it was, you know, and the many that we taught in a better way of life was just really inspiring. What was it like to be at the bedside of a patient who was dying in Zimbabwe and maybe compare it with what it's like to be at the bedside of a dying patient here in the States? Well, usually family was with the patients and uh, very rarely was a patient there totally alone. They would come, they would stay, they would cook, they would sleep beside the bed, you know, and have their belongings under the bed. So there was often family there. You have the mourning, which you would have a lot of grieving, a lot of wailing uh, many times, if, especially if it was a young person or a child. Um, if it was an old person, you would, but not to the same extent. I, I think in many ways, death is accepted as, as a part of life. You know, you have birth, you've got life, you've got death, and it's all part of the life cycle. And I think in many ways that's more accepted um, when it's a very old person, it's more accepted. If it's younger, then many times they feel there is a reason. And so they will go to try and find that reason, not medical. <laughs> Usually it, whether somebody did something, you know, or, and so many times they won't let that rest. But it's very much a village affair, uh, when there is a death and then as they're taken back to the village, um, the whole community comes and mourns for days and until the person is buried, life really doesn't go on. During my second time there, uh, we did have a morgue built. We had gotten funds to have a morgue built and that was a refrigerated morgue. That was a real blessing because many times people couldn't get the body transported home right away and then trying to keep, you know, especially it was in the summertime. Uh, so that was a real um, blessing. There was also an older missionary who he had retired and then they came back just to do some surface work and he built coffins, just basic wooden coffins. And it was just such a service, you know, for people to have something to put them in and to transport them home. So those are things that as I look back were just real blessings to the community to be able to get just a basic wooden box and also to have the body kept in the morgue. Tell me a little bit about your time in Appalachia and serving the people there. Oh, in Kentucky? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't really in Appalachia. We were, we were in Lexington. I was living okay. in Wilmore. Uh, he had gone there for seminary, and then I was working in Lexington. But we got a lot of patients from Appalachia. So mm -hmm. it was interesting because we got a wide range of um, socioeconomic, I mean, from wealthy to the Appalachian people, many who couldn't even read or write. And at that point in time, that was when smoking was still accepted and I had to get used to seeing the wads of tobacco on their trays, you know, or this smoking. And, but it was, um, that's where I got into the oncology part more. And we did see a lot of lung cancer there mm -hmm. at that time. I think the biggest thing there was such a wide range of the patients from very low socioeconomic levels to very high. When you think back on your career in oncology, how has that changed over the past 30-some years? Exponentially. <laughs> I think just the, 
the change in treatments. I mean, the research, it just has totally ballooned, you know, and I don't even think you could begin to track how it's changed. When I think back of just a few chemotherapy agents that we used in the very beginning and uh, the few agents that we had to use to control side effects, uh, to now where there's such an array and so many different times of regimens and combinations of regimens between chemotherapy and radiation therapy and surgery and all kinds of therapy. So the treatment itself has extremely changed. And I think ex, uh, looking at the total person so much more so that you're looking not just at the physical uh, disease part, but you're looking at their um, socioeconomic level where they are uh, and trying to work through that the psychological the spiritual the physical all is so entwined now I think that you're seeing so much more care of the total person and the family um, involved in that and also so much more acceptance of palliative care and end-of-life decisions and comfort Tell me how you personally were able to cope with the care of dying patients. A lot of people have asked me that. How did I deal with it? And, and I think because it was balanced, it wasn't like, I mean, we did do hospice. I, for a while, we had a temporary hospice before we had a permanent one. So we did do hospice care some. But I, I think it was always balanced with the end results that turned out good. You know, you, we had many patients that we would see monthly for a couple of years, you know, coming back. And ultimately they might be in remission, ultimately they might die. I think it was just being able to be there and provide that, those, that terminal time with them. I can't, I guess I looked at it as a day by day thing. As I look back at, at it now, I think, yeah, I guess it was, you know, stressful. The fact of being able to make a difference, whether it was in cure, or whether it was in remission, or whether it was in bringing them to a good, well, you know, <laughs> as good as possible, end of life. Was there a time when you had to make a hard decision between what you thought the patient care should be and maybe your ethics? There were times uh, that we had a couple doctors I know that I've worked with over the past that just wanted to always push on, push on. And when I knew the patient did not want that. Many times the ethics part, I think, though, dealt more between the family and what the family wanted and what the patient wanted and trying to get together on that. Because ultimately, I had to be a patient advocate. And... Uh, Many times the patient was ready to just say, look, I, I've had enough. I just want to enjoy my last days. And the family would not be willing for that. So it was trying, I think, many times to give the patient their voice to let it be heard. And sometimes I had to sort of be the mediator in that, trying to let them see that, look, she really does not want to go on. I remember one case where the family was just very adamant that we do everything and, um, uh, she had already requested a do not resuscitate and she but she told me she said i know if i you know go unconscious or something before they're going to say well we want everything done and she said just please please make sure that they don't but that puts you in your ethical bind mm -hmm. so literally i prayed that when she goes the family isn't here and we can just let her go and that's what happened it did happen one night I think many times it was trying to bring the family and the patient 
into some kind of agreement, whether that was to go on to the end that they both wanted or whether it was to just be comfortable. Are there any other patient stories that really stick with you at that end of lifetime? There was one uh, young woman in, in her 30s. She had two young boys. Ovarian cancer, I think, was her diagnosis. And when I had her, she was already quite terminal at that time. She was just swollen, totally edematous, could not walk anymore. And they had stopped treatment. They really, there was nothing more they could do. But the husband, and she was a Christian, and they, the family had been Christians, and she had shared that with me. But somehow he had become involved in um, something of a healing ministry. And I'm not saying there is not healing. <laughs> I don't want to get that. But he was just really extreme in that uh, he insisted that he and is also the pastor would come in and insist they would just pray and you get up, get up. You can get up. You have to defy the devil on this. Get up and walk and you'll be healed if you do that. And we tried to explain this. You'd look at her and there was no way she could get up. And they wanted us to help her get up. And I said, no, we just can't, can't get her up. He would make her promise to listen to these preaching tapes throughout the night that they would just absorb into her subconscious, I guess, when she'd be sleeping. She just would cry when they'd leave. She said, I just can't do this. I just can't do it. She said, I'm at peace. I'm ready to go. I just want to go. We would take the tapes off, put some other tapes on for her to listen to at that time. And also I brought her a tape that she could record some messages that she wanted to record for her sons when she was gone. So a couple times we actually had to have the husband and the pastor escorted out by security also. And fortunately, they were not there when she passed. And I was able to give the tapes to another family member. I think it was her mother when they had come in to take, you know, before the body was taken. But it was just a time that it, it challenged me in many ways because I'm a Christian and I believe in healing. And to see it done in this way, because death is healing too. And to see it done in this way just pained me to know that she was under such duress. But at least I felt we gave her some comfort in those last days. Did you ever pray with the patient? Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell yes. me about one of those experiences. Usually I, it wasn't something I usually initiated. There were times when patients say, would you mind just praying with me before, you know, for the night? Because since I worked night shift for 30 of those years, many times at night is when they would just open up, you know, it was quiet and they'd talk. And sometimes, would you mind just praying? Would you feel comfortable praying with me? And so if they would ask, I would. Other times I just felt like they were open to something and they wanted me to suggest it. And so at times I would just say, do you want me to say anything or pray with you or anything? And then usually that what would. And that happened to Jewish patients, uh, Protestant patients, you know, all kinds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it happened that you'd find that. One time we had a lady asked us, she said, I just want, I want to hear the old rugged cross again. Do you think you could sing the old rugged cross? And I thought, oh dear. And so I went out, we had a couple nurses working with me. They were Indian. They also were Christian. And I said, do you think we can come up with one or two verses of the old rugged cross? And they thought we could. So we went in and we sang her, the three of us sang her uh, one or two verses of the old rugged cross. And she just was so happy. And then she died later that night, but we felt we did what we could. Yeah. What a blessing. Yeah. How do you think your faith affected your 
choice to be a nurse? How do you think it affected your care of your patients? Well, I grew up in a pastor's home, so and it was a small rural church, so we housed all the missionaries that came through and everybody. So I grew up being exposed to missions from as far back as I remember, actually. And I don't know, I, I think from very young, I don't know, 10, 12, I just really felt that I wanted to go into medicine in some way. And I didn't really want to go in to be a doctor, but I really thought that I would like to go into nursing. And I think part of that was because I really felt that for at least some years I wanted to do some service overseas and that it would be probably easy. I didn't want to go teaching, so that was out. So, <laughs> so that it just seemed like sort of the obvious choice at that time. When you think of the new nurses that are coming up and that you've precepted so many mm -hmm. of them, what kind of words of encouragement do you give them? My motto has always been treat the, each patient like it's your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your child, your husband, your wife, whatever. Because I think that so many times, um, after a while, we look at the patient as just that number, that, you know, one that takes that much care or oh, do I have to go into that one again? And you can get very, I mean, it, you can get very overwhelmed sometimes with the care. And it's just to just stop and think, if this were my relative, or if it were me, how do I want to be treated? And that's, that is probably my most overwhelming <laughs> desire to see nurses, not just, and anybody, not just look at it as a job, but to look at it as um it's my mission and it's my care and this is how I want to be treated so this is how I'll be treating you. In your career did you have anybody that you got hope from or somebody who you could talk about your experiences so they, they, they didn't become overwhelming to you? I think our group of nurses as a whole was a real support to each other and when we would have Someone like we had a staff member, a nurse who had been with us for years, who within a matter of six months was dead from a very aggressive cancer. And that was a very hard time. The chaplaincy service at the hospital, uh, the nurses themselves just sort of really banding together. We supported each other, I think, probably more than any even outside support. Many times I found it was the patient themselves that encouraged me. I remember one woman with breast cancer, and she was in remission at the time, but she said, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was getting cancer. And I thought, really? Why? <laughs> and she said, because it's made me look at life in a whole different way. She said, I, I see things I never saw before. I appreciate things I never appreciated before. An older man, maybe around 70 that I had, who was very wealthy, had been a businessman, uh, CEO of a large company. And um, he had been diagnosed with, I think, pancreatic cancer, and he was terminal. And he said, and I don't even know how the conversation started one evening. Um, I asked him how he's feeling. He said, well, I think I'm feeling pretty good for what I've got. He went on. He said, you know, a lot of people keep coming and saying, oh, why did this happen to you? It couldn't have happened. You know, you're the best person we know. He was quite a philanthropist. And why would something like this happen to you? And he said, and I, you know, I've just come to say, why not me? He said, I've had all the money that I needed to take care of it, you know, and get the best treatment I could. I have had um, the time to travel all around the world. He said, I think of how many people haven't even had insurance to be able to care for. And he said, 
no, I think I'm the best person it could happen to. And I thought, wow, that's... So when I had things like that, sometimes those just really buoyed me up, I should say. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, thank you for telling me your stories today. It's such a pleasure to hear all your stories that have spanned this country (laughs) and gone to Zimbabwe and... I, I can only imagine that the patients that you cared for were so well supported by you. I hope so. so. Thank you for joining us for our first Menno HealthCast from the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship. To find out more about the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, go to our website at mennohealth.org. Become a member today and like us on Facebook. Your financial support helps to make possible this production our webinars, and the annual gathering coming in June 2019 at the Lauraville Retreat Center. We'd love to see you there. Musical credits to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stevanis and Norm Sohar. And I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger. Join us next time for our next episode of Menos in Medicine.